the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. When I-375 was constructed, it was over a neighborhood whose residents were displaced and not fairly compensated. Now that the state of Michigan wants to get rid of I-375 and restore the neighborhood that was lost, what's owed to the families who were victims of the freeway's construction? Today we're going to talk with Charity Dean, CEO of the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance, who says the project needs to focus more intently on reparations. It's all next on Detroit Today right after the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. The construction of the five freeways that cut through the heart of Detroit was a destructive and tragic process. Families lost homes and neighborhoods and communities were split by the six-lane throughways that made suburban economic growth possible. The worst of this happened in black neighborhoods and brown neighborhoods, where residents didn't have the political or economic clout to defend themselves. And that didn't just happen here in Detroit. This is how freeways were created all across the nation. And in each case, it was black and brown and Asian neighborhoods that were targeted for destruction. The good news is that the Biden administration is finally taking an extraordinary step in acknowledging some of this history and thinking of ways to help remove parts of America's highway system to rectify this awful history. In Detroit, for example, the state will use $105 million from the federal government to replace the one-mile stretch of I-375 with a six-lane boulevard that caters to pedestrians and cyclists. The transformation is going to create $50 million worth of land. Now, I-375's construction meant the end for important black neighborhoods and commercial districts. And one of the issues with the idea of recreating or rebuilding the area is, well, who should benefit? Will the descendants of the people who lost their homes and their businesses in this area be restored in some way for those losses? Are they even being heard in this process? And if not, well, how do we prioritize them? How do we have a conversation about something like reparations for those families? Charity Dean is the president and chief executive officer of the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. And she recently challenged business and community leaders to consider really bold solutions to address wealth inequality with regard to this I-375 project. She spoke at the Detroit Policy Conference earlier this week, and I have to say, as somebody who has been going to these conferences, I guess for decades now, it was one of the most stirring presentations I've ever seen. We've invited Charity here to make the case for the descendants of families living in Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, the neighborhoods that were destroyed by the construction of I-375 to get money and resources or at least broader priority in the discussion of this I-375 reconstruction project. Charity, it's really great to have you here in the studio. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. So happy to be here. So let's start with this presentation you made uh, earlier this week at the Detroit Policy Conference. As I said, it, it was absolutely moving. I, I, I thought... You told a great story. Uh, you had wonderful information, uh, statistics and things that people probably, especially in that crowd, uh, hadn't seen or heard before. But I want to give you a chance here 
just to make the same case to our our listeners. Uh, this is this is an issue that if you live in Detroit or if you're from that area, you know really well. Yeah. But if if you're not, you may not have heard about what happened and what's probably owed to the people it happened to. Yeah. So you know, in our country, we have a racial wealth gap, and Detroit is not unique. Uh, most metropolitan areas you talked about, highways, the stories that have happened in Detroit happened in Chicago, they happened in Boston, they happened in New York. Um, But still in 2023, we still have a racial wealth gap. Um, And that gap says that white families and black families with the same education and the same income, the white family is going to have nine times the wealth of the black family. And we have to understand why that is. And that racial wealth gap comes from generations of intentional policies that have deepened the gap. So when we're talking about wealth, we talk about capital assets, we talk about land and land ownership. And that is really, really important. And so, you know, the case I made um, on Tuesday at the policy conference was how can we as Detroiters who are used to doing impossible things, how can we lead the nation? And really taking the step uh, to really do what we can to close the racial wealth gap. The Kellogg Foundation released a report five years ago about this racial wealth gap and said that the state of Michigan stands to gain $92 billion if we close it. It was five years ago. It's like, where's the urgency, y'all? We got $92 billion (laughs) at stake. And so my proposal was how do we take what the Kellogg Foundation is saying, take what's happening downtown Detroit with the district Detroit going through a community benefits process right now with I-375 happening right now. How do we take these opportunities to say, let's leverage these to get a jump start on closing this racial wealth gap? Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, that was the message. So, so let's talk specifically about I three seventy five, which has existed for you know everybody's lifetime at this point. I mean, nobody really would remember, I think, what was there before. But, but there were very important areas to the African American community that existed before yeah. the freeway. Yeah, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Um, black, you know. It, it's interesting, and Jamon Jordan is the expert, right? So I'm not gonna, he's our yes. city historian, <laughs> and he can give you much more history than I can. Uh, but I remember my grandmother talking about Black Bottom. We have uh, members of our Black Business Alliance um, whose families were generations of entrepreneurs on Hastings Street, which was the commercial corridor that uh, existed in Black Bottom. And so uh, during this time, you know, this is not a time where black people can live anywhere. So we have to also understand that historical context that uh, redlining was very present and not just redlining. You had restrictive covenants in deeds so that I could not sell this house to a family that was black. This is all happening at the same time the government is saying, oh, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, that slum, we're going to remove these folks. And so it's not a removal and then you can go and go move to Rosedale Park. Rosedale Park in the 50s and 60s is all white. And it's going to be very hard for a black family to integrate. And I told the story of my great-grandmother, who was the second black family to move into Rosedale Park in 1973. Yeah. And her story and the, the process in doing that included death threats. and included all these things in the 70s. So you've got this area where black people can finally can live and can thrive. And then the United States government, the state of Michigan, and at that time the mayor of Detroit decide this is where we want to have a freeway. Yeah. And as I said in the open, we have a lot of freeways in the city of Detroit, more than most cities. I mean, if you look at a map of Detroit and compare it uh, to maps of other cities, uh, there was more intentionality in other places to try not to cut the city up into a million pieces. Here, we've got five major major freeways that go through the heart of the city. Um, And I-375 is important. Those neighborhoods were important. But this happened in neighborhoods all over Detroit, uh, including the neighborhood where I was born, near Livernois and Grand River. Um, You know, I-96 comes through the middle of our neighborhood after I'm born, in fact. It's uh, it's in 1973 uh, that that was completed. And on both sides of the freeway, what you see is this tremendous destruction uh, of community. Uh, yeah. Neither side ever recovers yeah. from uh, from that construction. 
that was an African-American yep. neighborhood uh, by that point uh, when that happened, too. But you can go all over yep. Detroit, really, and, and point out places <clears throat> where, uh, where black neighborhoods, brown neighborhoods used to exist, but now we have freeways. Yeah, yeah. And so it raises the question about what we value, right? What we value. Who and, matters. Yep, and who matters. Yeah. Yep, Absolutely. I'm talking with uh, Charity Dean, President and uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. Uh, we're talking about this incredible project, really, to try to restore a neighborhood that was destroyed by the construction of I-375 in downtown Detroit. Uh, we're talking about what's owed to the people who lived in that area, whose businesses were located in that area before I-375. If we're going to restore that neighborhood, shouldn't we pay attention to the things that were lost, the people uh, who were displaced? Uh, what do we owe them? How do we repay them? Uh, Charity made a presentation at the Detroit Policy Conference earlier uh, this week, uh, an event that was hosted by the chamber here in Detroit, and made a compelling case that uh, that the people who were the victims of the construction of I-375 ought to be at the center of the conversations about what comes next. They ought to be prioritized uh, in terms of being compensated in some way for what they lost. What do you think about that idea? Uh, what do you think should happen with the I-375 project? Uh, who do you think should be prioritized uh, in this major change uh, to not only downtown Detroit, but to the neighborhoods that are just east of I-375 as well. Uh, if reparations were going to be made uh, to the descendants of the people who lived there before, how would we do that? How would you like to see that uh, unfold? Uh, and what's the role of the state and the city and even the federal government in all of this? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you uh, through social media that way. Charity, before we get to listeners, I want to give you a chance to talk about this idea of centering uh, these folks. As you point out, there are members of your alliance who are descendants. I mean, one of the things I think is kind of frustrating about this conversation I've had uh, with some folks. They'll say, well, how can you go back and find these people who, you know, so many years ago lost these things and, and try to repay them? The truth is uh, that's not that long ago in this community. And there are all kinds of families that all of us know uh, who were part of that destruction. Uh, but, but talk about what you imagine uh, when you say that they ought to be prioritized or centered in this in this conversation, what should be happening that we're not seeing? Yeah. The f first things first, um, when we decide that we want to repair, then that should be the, a complete sentence. And so then the question is not, well, we it'll be very hard to. So therefore we can't. It's like, all right, we're up for the challenge. We want to use and leverage all of our resources to make it happen, right? So we so we have to approach it from a solution-based um, approach. Um, there are organizations, the Black Bottom Black Bottom Archives is a nonprofit organization that's been around for a while um, that has information. But you know, we have to think about you know because I've heard some of these things, Stephen. I've heard the oh well, it's limited domain, so they would have gotten just compensation. Um, from the government and so or oh well a lot of those entrepreneurs were tenants so therefore you know they didn't lose anything and I think <laughs> one of the things that we have to understand that what's worse than losing what you already have is losing what you could potentially have what you never had in what the you, first place what you never had in the first was and the opportunity that could have come had I stayed here for five more decades four more decades. And so that lost opportunity um, is really, really important. And I think we need to just, you know, not miss that. Um, and, and there are so many ways that we can be creative as a state, as a city, as a, as a federal government. Um, but not just, it's not just on the government, right? It's, it's on our, it's on everybody, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the work of closing the racial wealth gap needs to be on everyone. Everyone has a role to play. And when everyone sees it from that perspective, then the load becomes lighter. 
And then everyone can say, you know what? Well, I might not be the federal government, but I'm a corporation and I want to be here. I want to be in Black Bottom. So what do I do? What, what can I contribute if I am, you know, ABC Corporation and, hey, I wanted to have a, a residential building there. What can I do to help rectify what happened? And so it, it's a load that could be shared. And absolutely, I'm, I'm talking about prioritizing land ownership mm-hmm. for folks that were there. I'm talking about prioritizing business opportunities for people that were there. And, oh, yeah, there's going to be cost of business. I'm talking about reduced rents for those that are for black businesses in 375 and I'm going to say downtown generally because there are lots of things happening downtown and this is where a lot of these things that we're talking about these governmental intentional policies that have created this wealth gap that has deepened this wealth gap happen right downtown right so I'm talking about a zero percent loan fund Mm -hmm. right uh, to help uh, with getting capital to black-owned businesses because we have an access to capital problem because we have a racial wealth gap because historically black folks have not been able to access uh, lending from our financial institutions. I am talking about uh, creating a racial equity fund um, that says, Kellogg, we read your report. We saw what you said, and we want to do something about it. And we're, even though we're five years late, we're going to start today. So there's so many creative things that we can do um, to to make us at least partially whole. I don't think we'll ever be whole because what you can't take away is the lost years. You yeah. can't take away uh, the emotional trauma that happened. Um, you can't take away uh, the feeling of being pushed out of somewhere in a time where I'm not allowed to go any as I please. Yeah. I'm not allowed to move into any neighborhood as I please. You can't take away that. But what we can do is say every single person, every single, whether you are black or white, whether you are rich, poor, whether you um, are moving into that area, whether you're just like, we all have work to do to get to where we want to go. And if we do that, the load seems a little lighter. So so you said something at the opening of your presentation, um, and I don't want to, I don't, I, I'm going to butcher it if I try to, if I try to recreate the phrase, but it was so inspiring. I, I, I want you to say that to our, our listeners yeah. about the absurd uh, and the impossible. Yes. Only one who attempts the absurd can achieve the impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great way to think about limitations and the limitations we put on ourselves. Yeah. Uh, the things that we allow to keep us from dreaming and saying, hey, what if we tried it this way? And I think uh, especially here in Detroit and especially when it comes to race and reparations, uh, we're we're, we're terrible about this. Uh, We just are not thinking um, enough about what could be, and and we dismiss things really out of hand. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Charity Dean. We are going to get to you, our listeners, on the phones and on social. Susan and Jean in Detroit, David and Royal Oak, Jason in Gross Point, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, again, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include your comments that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us today. My guest is Charity Dean. She's president and CEO of the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. We're talking about the project that's about to unfold near downtown Detroit soon to essentially fill in I-375, this little spur that comes right into the heart of downtown Detroit and recreate a neighborhood that was destroyed uh, to make I-375. Uh, Charity made a presentation at the Detroit Policy Conference earlier this week uh, where she raised the issue of the families and the businesses who lost so much when I-375 was created. Uh, they lost their homes. They lost their businesses. They lost an entire community. Uh, what should 
the process of restoring that neighborhood take into account uh, with regard to those folks? Uh, How should we be thinking of prioritizing them uh, as we rebuild a neighborhood? Uh, We want to hear from you as well during the conversation, Colin. Let us know what you think would have should happen with this uh, I-375 project. Uh, who do you think should be prioritized? And if you think that we ought to be thinking about reparations for those who were damaged by the construction of I-375, how do you imagine that that unfolds? What does that look like? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to... Uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit uh, today, and we'll work you into the conversation. <clears throat> I want to start today with uh, Jason in Gross Point. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. How, how you guys doing today? Good. How are you? Good. I, I agree with everything that you guys have been saying, uh, Char- and Charity, you about, about reparations. And I wonder if uh, the the uh, situation out in California is a, is a good way to model it too. You know, where they just you know. Uh, gave back a bunch of land like oceanfront property in Venice Beach to some black families who had it taken from them. And, and then they bought it back from those families recently. I just heard like for like $20 million or something like that. Wow. I think, I think that might be like, you know, a, a good model to look at, but what angers me about the I three seventy five project the most is the complete lack of imagination that we're seeing. I mean, we're going to build a six lane boulevard on top of what is already a six lane highway. Are we serious? So, yeah, Jason, I'm wondering if you have like a recording device in my house because (laughs) I have been storming around since I saw the the drawings of what they want to do on I-375 and saying the exact thing. Why are we building a six lane street? We have so many of those. Actually, we have uh, many that are wider uh, in Detroit, and it's it's I think an impediment to to, to building the kinds of communities that we that we want. Um, I actually think that ties into uh, the restorative aspect of of the uh, of the project as well. Uh, what was there before was uh, a community. It was a walkable community. It it was a a pretty tight knit community. Um, I, I think if you were including the people who were wronged when this was built in the conversation, they would probably say, hey, uh, this doesn't seem very much like what we need or what we would want. Um, but, but Jason, I really appreciate the call. And I, I love the uh, allusion to what they're doing in California as well. I think that is an important example of uh, another community trying to, to deal with this. Charity, I'll, I'll give you a chance to respond to Jason, though. Yeah, I've heard about the the beach yeah. um, in California, and I, I, I agree with that. And, um, you know, how do we make decisions about land that we want to restore if not, we're not talking to the folks who were displaced? That's my comment to building a six-lane boulevard on top of a six-lane highway. We have to decide, do we really want community? Do we really want black neighborhoods, black businesses in community downtown? We really have to answer that question honestly uh, because that'll help. That's, our, that's how we make the decisions then. What do we want to see? And if we want to see just 375 a little bit more walkable, <laughs> uh, that's very different than saying we want to restore what was lost because it's so valuable. And restore the people yes. who lost it, right? That's exactly uh, right? Again, if you if you did center them in this conversation, I think they would say, I don't want to speak for them, obviously, but I think they would have a really different take uh, on all of this. Jason, really appreciate the call and, and the insight. Let's go next to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning, Stephen. Uh, they might want to consider uh, doing what they do downtown in terms of uh, – establishing a tax increment finance area, maybe for a limited time, say maybe 20, 25 years, so that the people that uh, are compensated uh, with land uh, uh, there can have a chance to build up uh, resources and uh, 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 get themselves reestablished with uh, the full uh, panoply of uh, tax abatements, uh, tax credits that they use to build up uh, the 7.2 area downtown. Yeah. So, Gene, you're you're bumping up against some of my sensibilities mm-hmm. here, of course. I mean, I hate the tax credits. 
uh, that that we have to give all the time in Detroit to developers in order to to help them uh, build their developments. I think it's terrible policy, and I think uh, when you look at the numbers, uh, especially this new proposed uh, uh, tax break for the district Detroit, I mean, it, it it just suggests that the tax system is is broken, and if you've got to give that kind of money to people. Um, something else probably has to change. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right that if we were going to do this, uh, this I-375 uh, project in an inclusive way and with the idea toward restoring those who were harmed, uh, tax credits should be on the uh, on the table as well. And, and again, Charity, from a business perspective, from an economic perspective, all of those tools that we use all over downtown to try to incentivize or spur development, I, I think you've got to bring those to the table here, too. Well, you know, so one, our tax system is broken, right? It, it absolutely yes. is. I think everybody and, agrees with that. Yeah. No, no, one, no one's willing to fix it. Right. That's the problem. <laughs> um, but yes, and we need to not just do it in 375. And that's what we're talking about right now. But if we think about all of the ways in which we deploy every single resource and take our brains to the extent of its creativity to figure out ways to get big manufacturing plants here and big developers here. We need to do that for black businesses generally across the board. 50% of Detroiters are employed by a small business. The, the black businesses are what? 70% of the 50, I think 60 to 70% of the small businesses in Detroit. They're hiring in the neighborhoods. They contribute to the commercial corridors. And so when you talk about these incentives that we use for the big players, we need to always, I mean, that's the bare minimum, in my opinion, that is the bare minimum for uh, black businesses. And we're trying to do that with the Metro Detroit black business Alliance, teaching about these tax credits and, you know, the uh, tax abatements. Um, But even in 375, I think we do that and right we've got to do that and uh for the for the folks that yeah. that we're missing yeah i mean uh, one of the other examples i think we can look to locally um is what's happening in what they're now calling uh, Paradise Valley in downtown. Uh, shortly after you were on stage, the mayor was on stage with uh, with Dennis Archer Jr., who was who a part of that project, and they were talking about all of the things that they've done to try to make sure that uh, African-American-owned businesses get the opportunity there and, and that they have the ability to make decisions about what is, is going to happen. They have some agency over uh, over the community. I wonder what, what you think about that we could be borrowing uh, for, for I-375. I think, um, so I think about what's happening in Paradise Valley. The Paradise Valley project is an example of where you see kind of black developers coming together, black development happening. It's been happening for a while. It's probably one of the longest mm-hmm. uh, projects that's been happening. Uh, so I, I'd be glad to see some ribbon cuttings and, and, and get to <laughs> moving some there. Openings. Yes. Um, but again, in a city that is 77% black, it, we cannot pick and choose and say, that's going to be our black corner. That's a great point. Uh, and so, oh, we'll give black people agency there in a city that's 77% black. Um, we have to really look at who is making decisions and we have to look at how we're empowering people to make decisions. And then we have to see, do they match the population of the city of Detroit? Because when when you don't, what you end up doing is tokenizing and you say, that's our black project or go to Livernois. Go to Paradise Valley. And then that's it. And that's it. Um, And so if it's not in who you are, if it's not, if equity is not ingrained in every single thing you do, every single conversation you have, every single policy that you make, then you will find that, oh, that's our black pocket and we'll do it over here. And so and and then we find ourselves in these issues uh, that that we that we have now. So that's that's my comment. Yeah, I think that's a great way to, to, to think about it. I mean, we are talking about a specific area here, I-375 and yeah. what's owed to the people there. But this isn't an issue across the city. Yeah. And it's an issue that that, uh, as you point out, you've got to think about all the time what is the what's the way to 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 make sure that the city's majority population yes. 
uh, is is involved. Uh, again, thanks so much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go next to David in Royal Oak. David. Hello. Hey. Yes. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. I just want to point out to the people talking about uh, uh, Bottom and Paradise Valley that in the early 1900s, the area along Hastings Street was a Jewish neighborhood, a flourishing Jewish neighborhood. My grandparents, who are from what is now the Ukraine, lived on Hastings Street. So that's the way population demographics work. Mm-hmm. Uh, a certain ethnicity, religio-ethnic uh, group is in an area for a certain amount of time and then moves on. So when you're talking about restoring that area as Black Valley, Black Bottom Paradise Valley, you're also, you also have to keep in mind that there was a Jewish neighborhood in the early 1900s flourishing along Hastings Street. You know, David, that is absolutely important history, and it's important cultural history here in the city of Detroit, the the, the sort of movement of uh, kind of discrete ethnic populations throughout neighborhoods in the city. And there is, of course, this, um, uh, I guess I would call it a following maybe of uh, uh black uh, neighborhoods that move into formerly Jewish areas that that goes on far into um, the 20th century uh, you know after Black Bottom it's it's 12th Street uh, after 12th Street it moves over to, to Dexter and uh, and areas like that and then up into Northwest Detroit and then into the suburbs uh, and that is an important part of our of our cultural history I, I would I would be remiss, though, if I didn't point out that there are significant uh, differences in the ways in which that's unfolded in those communities because uh, of the history of, of discrimination against African Americans in particular. And that's not to say that, uh, that uh, Jewish Americans don't face discrimination, but it doesn't unfold in quite the same, the same way. And the disenfranchisement of African Americans, the systematic disenfranchisement of African-Americans has made that look really different in places like Black Bottom. Uh, Jewish families moved on from Black Bottom to uh, better better opportunities and more prosperity that did not happen uh, for African-Americans. And I think it's a really important uh, charity that, that yeah. we draw those distinctions. It is different in this city, in this state, in this country, if you are African-American. It's, it was different historically, and it's different today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, Javon always talks about it. there was a huge Jewish population, huge French population in, in Black Bottom, and you're absolutely right. The uh, It was a very diverse area, lots of immigrants in the area in the early 1900s. And the question that I would ask is, how did people leave and why? Right. And that's a difference. I mean, it's always different when yeah. it's uh, when it's African-Americans. David, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and the information. Let's go to Susan in Detroit. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, just wanted to know if um, whether the history um, is still being communicated. And let me give you the, an example. In the 70s, as I was riding through downtown with friends or whatever, going to and passing 375 and moving on through Lafayette Park, and I would say, what was here before? And nobody could ever answer the question. In uh, 2010, I took a tour of the Mies van der Rohe uh, apartments, and unfortunately, this comment really struck me. It was a college-aged student giving the tour, African-American, and she said, well, these were built because... uh, Detroit had a shortage of housing, and they needed more housing, so that's why we have the 1300 Lafayette, et cetera. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I'm riding through, you know, up 375 with some friends, and the question was, why are they getting rid of this? What are they going to be doing, putting up more bike lanes and making it a walking space? So people still, I think, need a little more understanding of the history. Yeah, they they absolutely do, uh, Susan. I, th- that's a very strange explanation uh, that you were given for, 
for Lafayette Park, <laughs> uh, which which is a wonderful area, uh, yeah. and and is. Uh, I think uh, a good example of of a, a more diverse part of the city than than some others, uh, but but you know we're we're not doing great with with um, making sure everybody knows the history. Uh, Charity, I, I, you, you mentioned Jamon Jordan yes. earlier, and we should uh, reinvoke his name here. I mean that's that's the whole idea I think yeah. of having a city historian is that uh, you know you've got somebody to curate and make sure that people know about this this kind of history. Yeah, and uh, the the problem of not <laughs> remembering history correctly or telling the history correctly is not unique to Detroit. We've got a country uh, that uh, is still struggling with how do we tell the history, our racial history, uh, when it's not um, popular or when it's, it's uncomfortable. And so, uh, yes, Jamon Jordan, um, is an amazing historian. He is, he does tours, and he's a city historian. Jeanette Pierce is another one from City Institute that does a redlining, racism, segregation, Detroit tour. And so uh, we intentionality matters, right? And so I think when we talk about what we need to do, how we need to learn, they're not telling the history. It's on us, too. We've got an obligation to, uh, to tell the story so that we can tell our children. Right. So that we have an answer next time. We, so we can tell our children this is what happened, um, because, I mean, that's how history started. Right. It's just a storytelling of this. My mom told me my dad told me. And so I think we all have an obligation to learn what happened, um, not only so that we can uh, tell our children, but so that we are not doomed to repeat the past. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Charity, before we have to let you go, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you would love to see happen here in, in, in really practical terms. Who needs to do it? Uh, and, and how do we get to a space where uh, where this issue is at the center of what we're, what we're talking about here? In the summer of 2020, um, there was a sense of urgency by government, by corporations, that we are living in a time where we are in racial turmoil that they've never seen before. And that urgency was so um, deep that there were press conferences and there were statements and there were commitments to say, I don't, we don't want to get back here. And so what I would like to see, I would like to see the urgency of June, 2020, July, 2020, um, when it comes to what's happening at 375, I would love to see every single corporation that made a statement about racial equity at the table demanding because government will move. Look, it's one thing, you know, government can do what government can do, but boy, do we have power to advocate. Boy, do we have a voice. Boy, do we have dollars uh, to advocate for what we want to see. I would love to see the urgency that we had in 2020 around racial healing to everybody needs to come to the table. Every single, if you have an office downtown Detroit, you need to be at the table and you should be calling MDOT and you should be calling the city of Detroit saying, what are we going to do to solve this problem? And how can I help? What can I do? I am ABC Corporation. How can I help? I can leverage. I can start the racial equity fund. You know what? I will contribute to uh, the land. I will contribute to reduced rents. I will contribute every single person that made one comment, that made one Facebook post, that made a statement in the summer of 2020 should be at the table right now. Here's the opportunity. Demanding that this take on a really different tenor. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Charity Dean, uh, president and CEO of the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. It's always great to talk to you. It was really wonderful to have you in the studio today. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss a little more history. But with MLK coming up, MLK Day, we're going to talk about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., what he means to us today, and what he meant to Americans when he was alive. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
Right Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. On Monday, Detroit Today and WDET will join organizations all around the country in celebrating MLK Day, including our annual ritual of playing the entirety of his landmark, I Have a Dream speech, originally delivered right here in Detroit in June of 1963. But as we prepare for the national holiday, it gives us a little time to reflect on what Martin Luther King Jr. meant to our nation, and not simply as a civil rights leader. Really, to truly understand King is to understand how important things like voting rights, citizenship, and the health of our democracy, all things we are talking about with great intensity right now, these were things that were really important to his political activism and to his vision of our nation. For our next guest, understanding King's advocacy for radical citizenship, things like voting rights, a living wage, adequate housing, access to health care, and excellent and racially integrated education are crucial to understanding his legacy and fulfilling his mission. Peniel Joseph is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LBJ School of Public Policy at the University of Texas. He's written a number of books about race in America, including his most recent book, The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Peniel, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what do you wish uh, people who celebrate MLK Day knew more about the man and his mission. I say all the time that this is one of the most misunderstood figures in history. Uh, there's been I, what I might call a Christmasification of MLK in some ways, right? Uh, making him kind of into a Santa Claus. Um, but but that even that is not, uh, I think, uh, a full way to describe the depth of misunderstanding uh, about him. He, he, we don't know him as well as we should. No, we don't. And, you know, my my previous book uh, before this latest one was a book called The Sword and the Shield, um, which uh, subtitle is The Revolutionary Lives of, of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And um, that's a dual biography of King and Malcolm X that actually is going to uh, probably sometime this year or next be um, a, a, an eight part television series on Disney Plus. And um, we've been in the writer's room and, and doing all these things with it. And what's so interesting is that Dr. King is a revolutionary. And I think that's the thing that most people don't know, even though he's a nonviolent revolutionary. Uh, they don't know how he was influenced by uh, Malcolm X and the radical currents that were happening um, and, and developing both globally and domestically. And they really don't see how combative a figure King actually is. You know, by the end of his life, he's no longer on speaking terms with Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson doesn't come to King's funeral. Um, so when we think about Martin Luther King Jr., he starts off as somebody who's interested in political reform. Um, and over time, uh, really as early as, you can see this as early as 1963 with letter from Birmingham jail, where he says that white moderates and not the Ku Klux Klan and not the White Citizens Council, who are white supremacists, are the most dangerous uh, people in the country because they refuse to stand up for for justice, mm -hmm. right? And he says that in his time, um, you know, your your guest previously was basically saying the same thing about our time. You know, what happened to 2020? And so when we think about King, I think we have to understand King is somebody who um, evolves over time. Um, now we know um, after, you know, 50 years of investigating his death um, and his life, we know about, um, you know, some personal shortcomings. We know about um, uh, the parts of the dissertation are plagiarized. But when you really look at something like Letter from Birmingham Jail, which he writes from a Birmingham jail cell and is, is, is later published, um, you could see that King is intellectually um, brilliant. Uh, he's somebody who's deeply read. Um, he has his own uh, insecurities over many different things because he's under so much stress for so much of his life. I mean, he's assassinated when he just after his 39th birthday. So Dr. King would have been 94 right. on Sunday. Right. Just so everybody understands how his life was uh, tragically cut short. 
And I think people should need to understand, I mean, it's a political assassination. It's not just some random white guy who who, who kills Dr. Right, King. Right. Whatever whatever people want to say, it's it's not that. Because so what King is doing is leading um, a multiracial movement to fundamentally transform um, U.S. capitalism, right? I mean, by 1967, he says the triple evils facing America at the April 4th, 1967 Riverside Church speech is uh, militarism, racism, um, um, you know, and and basically he's talking about uh, capitalism and consumption. Yeah, materialism, and, right. And materialism, yeah. And and in that speech, he says America is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, but he says it's going to be a bitter but beautiful struggle to transform this country. So he, he remains defiantly optimistic, but he's willing to go in deeper places, really places that Malcolm had always gone into, by talking about the depth and breadth of racism and white supremacy, he looks at American history and the history of Reconstruction and why that failed. Um, and he 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 looks at how whites were given the Homestead Act and free land and agents to help them, and black people were 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 given, um, you know, were 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 lynched and segregated and and super exploited even after the Civil War. And he's telling that to, to um, interviewers and journalists, sometimes live on television, who really kind of don't like this new, improved Dr. King by 1966, 67, 68. So I'd say the biggest um, myth about King is that there's a misunderstanding that he's, he's uh, uh, there's not an appreciation that he's a revolutionary. And another myth, including one in my book that I criticized Malcolm X for is a misunderstanding of nonviolence and what King meant by nonviolence. Right, right. I mean, and that, I mean, that fits directly into this, uh, this, this description that I have of the way that we have treated him. This, this kind of uh, Christmas vacation of him, uh, the, the, the making the nonviolence thing um, into, um, you know, into something much more. Than than um, than what it was, and and making it into some kind of neutering dynamic, I think, of his politics and and his activism. Um, I, I think that's maybe one of the most common misconceptions uh, about him. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your book, um, uh, but I, but before we get there, I want to I want to have you tell our listeners. You know, MLK Day is a time that we have an opportunity to think more about uh, about Dr. King. What recommendation do you have for people who want to know more, understand more? Where would they start? Yeah, you know, I think a good place to start is probably reading um, his his final book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, mm -hmm. just to get an understanding of his thinking and of his thoughts um, near near the end of his life. Um, uh, certainly, there's going to be a number of different books, uh, including um, Taylor Branch has a great book, yes. a trilogy on King. Uh, Jonathan Eig, my friend, the writer uh, from Chicago, has a great book on King coming out in June, I believe. And I've, I've read that in the galleys. It's a brilliant unbelievable book. And Jonathan wrote the great um, biography of Muhammad Ali, which is probably the best book on Muhammad Ali ever a few years ago. And um, so there's a lot of places to start, but I would start with King's own words. You know, and if you if you need something shorter, I would start, there's a great book called um, Testament of Hope, The Essential Writings of Dr. Martin Luther mm -hmm. King Jr., mm -hmm. edited by James Washington from around 86, 87. In that book, I would read um, a few things. I would start with letter from Birmingham jail from 1963, because uh, I think that it's it's just so important and so eloquent. And I like a uh, letter from Birmingham jail too, because that's a that's a, uh, a piece of King's writing that is not um, ghost written and edited and right. massaged by other people. Uh, but again, I, I think it shows you how clearly brilliant uh, he, he, he was. Um, I would also read um, uh, the Riverside speech from 1967, you know, there, there's a time when silence is um, betrayal. Um, I would read Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution, uh, which is the, the last Sunday sermon that Dr. King did on March 31st, 1968, 
um, on the Passion Sunday sermon uh, at the National Cathedral. Um, and then I finally would read the, 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 the I've seen the promised land, the last speech. Um, and really, you're going to get a great um, cross section sure. of, of what King is thinking. And, and I would also say people should use this weekend for service um, uh, and teaching and learning in the context of racial and social justice. I mean, I, I, here in Austin, uh, uh, I'm on the board of my daughter's school and we're we're doing the Building the Beloved Community of, event mm-hmm. here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of other different things, but but I'm volunteering and the whole weekend is just devoted to um, to others, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we should really think about you utilizing this time to 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 really learn and co-learn with other people, um, but also to do um, you know acts of service that are connected to um, building that beloved community. And by beloved community, King said he met a community that was free of racial and economic injustice, that mm-hmm. was free of 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 war's pestilence, um, that was free of, of of violence, both physical violence, but you know political and policy. Of violence, sure. um, and that includes things like what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi. Absolutely, the, the water, thing. the water crises, the the, the, yeah. the, the things so, around voting. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, the critical race theory hoax, all, all of, of so that. I think it gives yeah. us a, a context to 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 be of service and to learn. Yeah. So I hope everybody so, um, takes advantage. So of I don't want to I don't want to cut you off, but we are running out of time. Um, I, we're going to have you back if you are. Willing to, to, to talk about uh, this wonderful new book of yours, The Third Reconstruction. I, first of all, I love that phrase. Uh, <laughs> I want to ask you about that, but we're going to have to have you back uh, to talk about that. But, Peniel, uh, really great to have you here. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, we will have another conversation here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM. Your Detroit NPR station.